we have been doing a series called Favourites. And uh, we've had Simon speak, and his favourite was about uh, how we need to blow the roof off the place. That was one of them. Uh, talking about the, the parable of... I might just bring this in the middle while I tell you. The, the, the story of the um, lame man and how uh, the, his friends lowered him through the roof so Jesus healed him because of the friend's faith. He loved that story and he was lucky enough to do two weeks of favourites. So he did also a passage out of Isaiah which talked about rejoicing and how um, we need to shout to the Lord but also God shouts at us. And we need to be listening to that. And there was another, so that was another sermon. And then Eric presented an incredible message on Josiah when he found the, uh, the scrolls. And his key line was, it's okay to have favourites as long as we don't neglect the rest of Scripture. Because the rest of Scripture can actually feed us so much as well. And if we only focus on a little bit, we're missing out on so much more of the rest of Scripture. That was an awesome sermon by, by Eric. Then last week, Joe talked about radical hospitality. And she talked about this, this, the parable, her favourite was the parable of the good Samaritan and how he showed radical hospitality to, to the injured man on the, the side road. And that was another awesome sermon. All those, if you want to listen to them, when you're back in Canberra, they're online. So they're, all our sermons are recorded online. After the service, I can show you how that works. But um, this week... This week, I'm going to tell you my favourite. And now, Eric, Joe, they all said, look, it was really hard to pick out a favourite. I also have a lot of favourites, but I didn't struggle this week. I just thought, which one do I like the most that's my favourite? And this story came up. Job. Job's my, one of my favourite sermons. And the idea also behind this is actually giving us an insight to the preacher. So hopefully, while I preach, you guys will obtain an insight to how I actually observe, learn, relate to God. So, this sermon, I'm going I'm to try and do something which is, it could turn into a very long sermon. I'm going to put the whole story of Job, which is 42 chapters, and try and summarise it for you while we do the points. So, we're going to go through the story together and we're going to pull out a few points in between the sermon and um, I'll, I'll hopefully, by the end of it, still have your attention. <laughs> but before we get into the book, right, before we get into the story of Job, it's really important to notice a few features that are unique to the book of Job, right? Job's set in a land called Uz. Uz, U-Z, Uz. And uh, it's far, far away from Israel. Israel are God's people. They're the chosen people, uh, the chosen land. And it's, it's nowhere near that. The, all the characters in the book of Job aren't Israelites. Again, removing out from people. It's removing out all these aspects which have so much hidden meaning in different passages because we don't relate to that anymore. And then the third thing to notice is there's no mention of a historical error. It's not in the Palestinian, it's not in the Babylonian, it's not in the Mesopotamian era. There's no mention which era it's set which begs one as the reader to ask a question. If he's deliberately put all these things in and every bit of information that's in stories in the Bible is there for a reason or isn't there for a reason, 
If those things are deliberately left out or put in, what is the author of the story wanting us to focus on? And to which I would answer that the author wants us to focus on the key questions that are raised by Job's story and suffering, right? That's why I reckon he's done all those things, why he's put out all those different ideas, he's chucked out the fact that there's no longer the Israelites. That's my take on it. You'll find different scholars say different things. That's the one I like, um, and so that's the one I'll go with. The book of Job's separated into four parts. You've got the epilogue, and you've got a, a prologue, so the beginning and the end. Prologue's first, epilogue's last. <laughs> and in the middle is a chunk of dialogue. And the chunk of dialogue is separated by the fact that simply the first part is Job and his friends and the second part is Job and God. So four parts to the story. Have you guys read Job? I presume you've read Job. Yeah, it's a great book, isn't it? Love it. But let's start in chapter one. Good place to start. Chapter one. And in chapter one, you're firstly introduced to Job. He's described as a blameless, righteous, God-honouring man. That's the first thing we learn about Job. Who else is described as a righteous, God-honouring, blameless man? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is, we know that. Enoch, Enoch yeah. King David, King David. Abraham. I think Moses was, God-fearing. He may not have been all three, but he was definitely God-fearing and I can't remember exactly. But I want to point that out because isn't it fascinating that there's that link between Job's character and the character of those huge figures of which were attributed to David, Abraham, Enoch, a prophet, all those different characters. So instantly we get this sort of person of Job, we, we know who he is, and then out of nowhere we're transported from Job, being with Job in, in, in his current setting, to a scene which is into an, a heavenly courtyard. Now the heavenly courtyard in the Old Testament is a symbol for where God runs the universe. When you see it in the Old Testament, generally when it, in, it's in reference to God, it's where God is running the universe, where the things are happening, where he's making decisions. It's a common symbol. And in this courtyard, now it might be, you think might think of NASA, because that's a, technically where things are made, decisions and all those different things. You might think of um, Parliament House. Are decisions made there? I don't know. But <laughs> no. <laughs> Just a cheeky joke. <laughs> but you might think of um, a courtroom. You might actually think of a courtroom that we have. And that's the sort of the image I get when I, when I think of this. And I think of a jury in the side. And within the jury, there's this character. He's named the Satan. Now, it's spelt the same as Satan, but it's pronounced Satan, in, if you were to pronounce it properly, which in Hebrew means the accuser or persecutor. So, we've got Job. We've got a courtyard where God's ruling and making decisions and judging. And then you have the Satan. And God pre presents to the committee, the jury in my case, because I imagine a courtroom, He presents Job as a truly righteous man. Truly righteous. And the accuser, the Satan, 
states that Job is only righteous because you bless him. He says, let him suffer and see how righteous he is. You can see why he's called the accuser now, can't you? (laughs) The The Satan challenges God's policy on rewarding the righteous. This is the idea that we're going to be building around. And what's amazing is God says, okay, I will allow Job to suffer. It's this part of the book that we, should, we start to make an assumption and presume that the rest of the book is going to um, answer this event. Why did God let Job suffer? Why does he let a good righteous man suffer? We presume that's what it's going to answer, but it doesn't. And this brings me to my first point. The story doesn't explain why God let Job suffer. And you know what? My first point of the sermon this morning is, it's okay, we don't know. Do you want to pop that slide up, Nico? There you are. We don't know and that's okay. The thing is, we're not God, so we don't need to know everything. And even when we don't know everything, the world still runs in perfect symphony... Have you seen the movie of uh, Indiana Jones? And uh, there's that, I don't know which one it is, Eric, you might know, but the one where he's got, the the man, the the provocative, the guy that's against Indiana Jones in that uh, movie, it's one of the more recent ones, he wants to go and obtain the information of all the world. And he goes to like this alien race to obtain it all and they're trying to, they're in this volcano and he's getting all this information but the information is so much and so great the guy's head actually explodes. Yeah, maybe it's the Temple of Doom, who knows. But um, my point is that there's this pressure that builds up when we expect ourselves to actually know. There's a pressure. And it's not until you accept that you don't know that, and when you accept that um, you don't need to make up something so it seems like you know, so that you have a more persuasive sermon, in my case, when you accept that you can just say, actually, I don't know, that's when you can say, I need to work on myself. And actually, you're inviting God to come in and grow and work you. When you free yourself, you allow God to work in you because He does know. So, it's okay to say we don't know. That's my first point as we're going through this this story of Job. Let me ask you this question though. Is there somewhere in your life where you need to just say, I don't know? I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Maybe it's uh, the future of the church. We don't know where it's going. We don't know what it looks like. Maybe it's this, this campus, this church building here. Maybe it's the church in Australia. Maybe it's the church in the world. We don't know how the Christian religion's running out. Maybe it's you don't know what your wife or kids, what's happening. You, don't, you can't know their emotions. In my case, I don't know whether I'm going to have kids or a wife. (laughs) 
I don't know. But when I accept that it's okay and God has it in control and that he has a better plan for me than my own fear, then he's allowed to work in that. Maybe it's something super serious and you don't know what you're getting for dinner. I don't know whether I'm cooking lamb or chicken. That's one of the biggest decisions of the day. (laughs) We don't know. It's okay not to know. And it's an encouraging thought. Let it be an encouragement. But if we get back to Job, if the book doesn't answer why God allows suffering, then what are the questions the book is setting up? And these are the questions. Let's pop those slight ones up, Nick. It's, is God just? And does he rule the world with justice? And this is what we get in chapter one. <coughs> Job's starting to... Uh, the, the scene is starting to unravel the, to unreveal these questions. Is God just and does he rule the world according to justice? And if you wanted, uh, if we were to do a Bible reading this morning, we would have done it in from chapter 42, the last chapter of Job, and it, it essentially has the answer to those questions. If you're like me and went to the back of the maths book textbook just to get the answers to write a minute class, that's where you go. So the prologue ends with Job's suffering... He's rebuked by his wife, his family, uh, his kids all die and he loses all his wealth and all his, uh, his riches and he has three friends who come to provide counsel and wisdom to Job. Their names are Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite. Now, it's important to note that these thre- friends may not be literal people, but actually they're representations of the best of ancient North East thinking at the time. So when we read it, it's actually these friends represent the trains of thought that those nations, which were considered the best at thought at the time, were actually presenting in how to wrestle with these concepts of is God just and does he rule the world with justice? And then we go into the body. When I was talking about the four structures, we get into the first section of body and it's all dialogue. And this first part, the next 34 chapters, is dialogue between Job and his friends. And the pattern goes like this. Job will speak. Job speaks. And then Job's friend will respond. So Job speaks. His friend responds, right? Job will speak again as if he's answering that friend, but then this friend comes in and responds to Job instead of this friend. So the second friend starts talking to Job. Job then replies to the second friend, and then the third friend will reply to Job's response to the second friend. Does that make sense? Cool. And that happens three times, back and forth, back and forth, three times. And the main thing to note about Job and his friends isn't necessarily what they're saying, but those big concepts. The big concepts that come up between the conversation, being what we just said. Is God just? Does God rule the universe on a strict principle of justice? Then a third question is added. How then is Job's suffering to be explained? And this is the third question. Now I'm just going to slow down a little bit here because... 
we've been going through pretty quick. We're now 37 chapters through on the 42. And I just want to make sure we can chew on this bit for a little bit. And the first thing to note when Job and his friends are working at this big idea of justice is they have an assumption, an even bigger assumption. And this is where Job starts to differ as a genre of wisdom literature. In the Bible, we have different genres in the books and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are also wisdom literature. They're very formulaic. If you do this, you get that. If you eat veggies, you have a fit body. If you get, eat sugar, you get diabetes. That's, that's their sort of structure. But this is where it starts to change. This is where it's so important to read the three in conjunction. So you don't get a one-sided understanding of wisdom, at least in the Bible. So the formula that Job and his friends were following was this. A human action receives God's justice. E.g., if you are wise and good, then you'll be rewarded and succeed. If you're evil and stupid, then you get disaster and punishment. Does that make sense? That's their understanding of justice. This leads to two claims. One comes from Job and one comes from the friends. <coughs> In the first hand, you have Job's argument. And that he states that he's innocent and his suffering is not divine justice. This is true because remember back in chapter 1, God says that Job is an innocent, righteous man. So Job is right in that aspect. But his conclusions is where he starts to get it wrong. Job makes two conclusions, both of which accuse God. The first one is that it's that God doesn't run the world according to justice. That's his first conclusion. Or, if that's not the case, God is unjust. That's Job, Job's conclusions. The friends, on the other hand, their argument is that God is just and God does run the world according to justice. This is why we need to slow down a bit. It gets a bit confusing. I was never good at maths. Tried to do science, but didn't do too well. So they argue God is just and God does run the world according to justice. So their conclusion then is that Job has to have sinned. And they even go to the point where they start saying to him, look, did you murder someone by accident? Which would make it manslaughter, not murder. <laughs> Did, did you manslaughter someone? Did you have adultery? Did you? They go to all these different lengths to try and find out what Job's done wrong, which is causing him to suffer. Which rule did he break? And eventually, Job gets so sick of it that he makes a protest. He just gives up on his friends. And it's understandable. And we need to remember, during this whole thing, Job is on an emotional roller coaster. You can probably empathise with some of those emotional roller coaster times. I'm going to read to you a couple of uh, verses which show Job's instability in his emotions. The first one comes from 9 verse 22 and 23. He destroys the blameless and the wicked. He mocks the despair of the innocent. 
The next comes from 16 verse 9. God attacks me, tears me up in anger and gnashes his teeth at me. The third one in chapter 27 verse 2 says, Why has God denied me justice and made my life bitter? So can you see how the formula doesn't match up with their understanding of justice? And Job's on this roller coaster, he's trying to figure it out. And every time he utters one of these statements, it's really important to note that he actually is terrified when he says something like that. And immediately after, he, wants, he always states something like this. This is from 27 verse 8, so six verses after the last one. What hope do the godless have when their God takes away their life? See, Job wants God to be there. He wants God to be just and he wants God to be the man for him, the man, the, the, the God for him. But he's going through all these things that are just making him doubt whether or not it's real. So we're powering through. In chapter 29 and 31, Job makes this last statement. This is the last thing we hear of Job in the second part of the book. And it says, the last verse in it says, I sign my defense, let the Almighty answer me. And he is essentially saying, this is my innocence case, God come and show me what I've done wrong. At this stage, there's a fourth person that comes up. That's not Job, there'll be five people altogether. His name's Elihu, right? And he's a Hebrew. Now, no, he's not Israelite. He's just called Elihu the Hebrew, keeping that context out of it because the author wants us to focus on the questions. He presents a new thought to Job. His argument is that God is just and that God runs the world according to justice, but his answer is a little bit more sophisticated. He concludes that suffering may be a warning to avoid future sins because it builds character. It's a new train of thought that we haven't yet entered into in Job. Now, Elihu doesn't claim to know why God allows suffering, but he does state that whatever you do, do not accuse God of being unjust. Do not accuse God of being unjust. And then that's it. That part of the scene ends. If we were watching Shakespeare, we'd sort of get an intermission now. We'd go out, get our popcorn and our Coke and uh, get ready for the next scene, go to the toilet um, and the curtains have closed. Job doesn't reply to Elihu, or at least that we're aware of. It's not written. He doesn't reply. And then the curtains open again and the grand entrance of God comes. And this is one of my favourite parts of the book and in the Bible. And I can't tell you if it was a week later or whether it was a, a day after Elihu left or whether it was years later that Job had this encounter with God. But God shows up in a whirlwind. He shows up in a whirlwind. And Job, he responds to Job personally. He first responds to Job's accusation that he's unjust and incompetent at running the universe. And God takes him on a virtual tour of the universe. 
And he starts asking him all these questions. He says to him, where were you when I architected the earth and constellations? Isn't that a powerful thought? Has Job ever commanded the sunrise or controlled the weather? The point of it is God has all his, his eye on all these cosmic details that Job has never conceived. Then God goes into detail. He describes the grazing of the mountain goats and he describes how deer give birth and then he tells Job about the feeding patterns of lions and wild donkeys. What's the point of all this? Why would God do this with Job? How is this answering the question? So if we remember the assumption of Job and the friends, that God's justice is an equal reaction to their immediate action, right? God's justice, that's their understanding and assumption of it. Well, underneath that assumption is a deeper one, that Job and his friends have a wide enough perspective on life to make such a claim on how God ought to run the world. Did you get that? Hmm. That Job and his friends, they think they have a wide enough understanding on life to make such a claim on God. And God's response with the virtual tour deconstructs all the assumptions. (coughs) It first shows that the universe is a vast, complex place and God has his eyes on every detail. Job, on the other hand has only a teeny tiny small horizon and understanding of life which he draws from. His view of the world is limited. And so what looks like divine injustice to Job in his situation actually needs to come from the point of view from God which is an infinitely larger context. Job is simply not in a position to make such a huge accusation about God. God then offers Job the role to manage the world for a day. And I'm so glad he said no, because otherwise we may not be here today. (laughs) No, he says no. And it's because on the strict basis of Job's now understanding of justice... He wouldn't be able to run the world. Simply giving actions and consequences is far too simple for this vast world that we live in. Which leads to God's last point to Job, where he describes two incredible beasts, Behemoth and Leviathan. Where do they come from, Eric? You know where else they come from in the Bible? Psalms, yeah, they're in Psalms and they're also in prophetic literature, uh, sorry, apocalyptic in Daniel, which is also in Isaiah too. And the idea is that some scholars think they're a poetic description of a hippo and a crocodile, and that's the minority now. The rest of them think that behemoth and leviathan are reference to creatures of the mythology of the time, right? And those creatures actually represented disorder and danger. They represent disorder and danger. And 
these things exist in God's world when he, starts, he tells Job that these things are real. And he uses these creatures to describe that. And guess what? God says these creatures aren't evil. In fact, God is quite proud of them. It seems that when he talks about them, he's quite proud of Behemoth and Leviathan. But they're not safe. Quite often we think when God's proud or owns, he claims ownership of something, that it's safe. They're not. The point is, with these two creatures, that God's world is amazing and very good, but it isn't always perfect and safe. It has order and it has beauty, but it's wild and dangerous. <clears throat> We're almost there, almost there. The question then that is left is, why is there suffering in the world? Whether it's from earthquakes or tsunamis, which we've seen in Haiti, whether it's from animals, we hear of attacks all the time from wild animals, or even from other humans, Las Vegas. Um, God doesn't say why. Takes us back to that point to it's okay to not know why. But God's response is that we live in an amazing complex world and at this stage at least, it's not designed to prevent suffering. And that's God's response. That's his response to Job. So if we recap, Job challenges God's justice. God responds to Job. Job then demands an explanation. And then Job, God says to Job just to trust him in his wisdom and character. I could have told you that at the start, but then we wouldn't have gotten near the fun that we had. Yeah, pop up that slide for me, Nico. God, Job challenges God's justice. God responds to Job. Job demands an explanation. And God only asks for Job to trust. And this is where Job's reaction is incredible. Job responds with humility and repentance. After this huge journey, after the suffering, after the, the pain, after this experience with God, he apologises for accusing God. And he apologises for overstepping the mark. And then we get to the last chapter. <coughs> and it's the prologue. Epilogue. Epilogue. It's the final part. In which God states, the three friends, the original first three friends, were wrong in their understanding of the world and states that they do not know enough to be able to make judgments on God. They have insufficient knowledge. But then they, he says that Job has spoken rightly. Now, it couldn't have been everything Job said because God just finished rebuking him and pointed out how wrong he was. So what was it that was right about Job that he came, when he came before God, with all those questions. And it was that the, his attitude in how he approached God, that God was saying, that's right. Job came to God with his struggles and wrestles openly and honestly and humbly. And that's what God's saying is right. 
Which brings me to my second point of the sermon. It's okay to struggle and question God. Pop that one up, Nick. It's okay to struggle and wrestle with God. And I feel like sometimes we feel that there's that we, we are warned enough in the New Testament and we're warned in that there's going to be struggles as Christians and we just say, okay, we'll cop the blows. We get told, you know, yeah, it's going to be hard road and we just accept it. But what's so cool about Job is actually, and it's a bit contradictory, God honours Job for coming and wrestling with God in those hardships. The main thing is though, which is so important, that it's done with an honesty and humility. It's okay to struggle and wrestle with God. He may lose a hip like Jacob, but he still wrestled with God. It's okay. Finally, Job's blessed. He's blessed and he gets double his wealth. I think he gets something like 6K camels and he gets... 13k sheep and he gets an incredible blessing. He has three daughters which are called the most beautiful daughters in all the land. He has a new wife that would mean um, and he, his family comes and gives him silver, ring, silver and gold rings and he's restored in abundance. Double it says in the Bible of what he originally had. The book of Job doesn't unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to good people. Rather, it invites us to trust in God's wisdom when we do encounter suffering. Rather than trying to figure out the reasons. This is why Job's one of my favourite Bible stories, because it gives me a teeny tiny glimpse of the character of God. For me, any story that gives me a, a glimpse of that, how I can approach Him, how I can come to Him, how that can affect my relationship and how I see Him, that makes it an instant favourite of mine. That's why I like Job. So, so far in the sermon, you've had two points and the story of Job very, very, very briefly summarised. What's my big idea? This is the big idea for you. When we search for reasons regarding God we tend to either simplify, like the friends in Job did, uh, sorry, like the friends of Job did, we either tend to simplify God or we try to, or we tend to accuse God. That's when we search for reasons for, uh, regarding God. We either simplify God or we accuse God. And it's based on limited evidence. But instead of doing that, what we should do is come to God, not looking for reasons or anything, but simply with our pain, with our suffering, and allow God to just work with us. We just need to own that, yes, we're sad, bring that struggle with God, and then allow Him into the situation. That's my big idea. And that's the story of Job. That's my reason why it's my favourite and that's, that's my take in a sermon of it. <laughs> Something we should Bible study on. Very good. Well, let's pray, hey? Let's pray together.
Thank you, God, for the wisdom of Job. We pray that uh, when struggles come, we won't be afraid to come to you humbly and honestly and just wrestle with you in it. Allow you to come into that situation. Uh, we just pray that, yeah, we, we have a sensitivity but an openness to being um, allowed to enter into that position with you. We thank you for the representation of that in Job. Amen.